Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Believe in Betting Chicago. My name is Joey Christopoulos. Today's episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Look, football might be over, but guess what? NBA, college basketball, the NHL, it's in full swing, and baseball is right around the corner. So the only place you should be betting on right now with any of these sports is at betonline.ag. If you don't like sports, no problem. BetOnline even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. It also has hundreds of props and real-time odds on almost anything you can imagine. And of course, the 24 online casino, that thing never closes. So head to betonline.ag and head to that website on your mobile device today to sign up and you will receive a 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's right, only at betonline.ag. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming into the pod today. I'm so excited to have this guest. We've been talking for a little while. I'm a big fan of his work, and he is the sports producer right now at WGN-TV. It's Larry Hawley. How are you today, Larry? It's nice to meet you. I'm wonderful, and I'm actually a little bit warmer. We have now uh, up to a balmy 34 degrees, so it's been a brutal month of February, but things are creeping up just a little bit every day we go by, so fingers crossed in early spring. If you lose a couple of layers during this interview, I'm not going to be upset. It's, it's not going to be an unprofessional move by any stretch of the imagination. Super excited to have you on. Just really been enjoying looking at your Facebook page. Honestly, the last couple of days, you're doing these really interesting pieces, not just with sports, but also you've been highlighting some beer, uh, some beer different companies and everything. Just really great work. Maybe we could just start here. Let's keep it simple. Um, you know, let's just do a running play right off the bat. I'd love to just have you tell us your story. Let the listeners know about you from, you know, a young man in Rolling Meadows to, you know what I mean, U of I, all the way maybe to Indianapolis, and now back here in Chicago as a sports producer for WJN TV. So I went to U of I after graduating from Rolling Meadows High School, uh, was uh, graduated in uh, correspondence after my last year there was 2002. I worked for WICD TV in Champaign, worked there in pretty much every role. So I did studio production that is running the prompters, running the cameras, then became what was known as a one-man band reporter photographer. I basically had to earn my way on the air. So I do a good on-air story. If I did it well, I got another one. And then eventually that got pulled after about six months. I would, did news and sports there. I eventually became the chief photographer for about nine months. Then I went to Milwaukee where I became a news and sports, same kind of job, reporter, photographer, probably more news than sports was there for about a year. So I was there from October of 2004 to October of 2005. My last day was actually the day the White Sox won the World Series. So it was October 26th of 2005. I went to Asheville, North Carolina, was there from basically Halloween through uh, October 30th of 2007. Really unique experience. I mean, living that far away from home, it may not seem that far. It's about a day's drive, but it was a totally different world. I'd never really been around mountains. I had only really seen like Carolina, Duke, Clemson. Uh, we covered a lot of that, but a lot of high school sports, a lot of local sports, incredibly rewarding experience with incredible people for two years that I had there. Really grew myself in the loving storytelling. Uh, for those of you who might remember uh, the Appalachian State, their upset of Michigan, uh, we covered them. So I was up there a couple of days before that happened. And then after that happened, that was a lot of fun. Also, minor league baseball, I had that for the first time there. Uh, for those Cub fans, the first game I covered for the tourists, opening night, Dexter Fowler hit a leadoff homer. Oh, that's uh, a good years, one. That's opening night, 2006. Ten years later, he had a leadoff homer in a November game that was a little bit more significant. Great time there. Went to Indianapolis, was there from November of 2007 through February of 2015. Uh, a great life education along with 
also being career. There were a lot of downs and ups and all of that all at the same time. Uh, was the end of the Peyton Manning era. They went to Super Bowl 44 when I was there. Uh, they would have the Andrew Luck transition after that. They made the AFC Championship game. That was the last football game I shot. I ended up coming to Chicago a few months, uh, actually not a few months, but just about a month later. Uh, during that time also, there was a Butler Bulldogs run to the final four in Indianapolis. One of the greatest events I've ever seen was that 2010 Butler Duke National Championship game. I was standing on the other opposite end of the court when Gordon Hayward took the shot. It looked good. All the way up to the last second, I'm like, wow, it's a lot of power on it. And it bounced right off. Even so when it hit front rim, I was like, is this going to pop up and come back in? Yeah, it was crazy. And, you know, the one thing I always remember is for, for fans of the game, Matt Howard set an incredible pick on Kyle, Kyle Singler around midcourt to free up Hayward to get at least a clean look for it. What's interesting about that, too, is that Hayward had the shot in the possession before and was angrier he missed that because he felt like he had enough elevation. He basically dribbled around the paint came to the right side of the hoop baseline, put it up, and it just bounced off. It was just a little bit long, if I'm not mistaken. And he was actually more upset about that. But a classic game, you know, that was one of the big stories when I was there. Indiana University, obviously, coming back from the Samson era where they had the sanctions at the end, the Christian Watford shot. Those were things that were there. Lots of Just lots of great stories that were going on there. Uh, then in Chicago, so this is March of 2015, I was on the air there, went behind the scenes here. And, you know, kept up a lot of the web reporting, kept up a lot of the, you know, doing the little videos, which I got an opportunity to do about a year into when I was the producer. I was hired to be the producer of CLTV Sports Feed. Uh, you might remember Sports Page uh, when we were growing up. This was essentially the reinvention of that uh, about, I think, 2000. So about seven years after Sports Page had come to an end. We had a great run. Uh, it was a lot of hard work. It was an hour-long show. We had a lot of different unique guests, a lot of good segments. Josh Friedman and Jared Payton really built a great rapport. We did that show for four and a half years until CLTV was their broadcast war ceased. And that would be in December of 2019, December 30th, 31st, 31st. They actually went off the air. Our last show was actually the 30th of December of that year. Uh, since then, I've been producing for WGN and continuing to write heavily for the web, do videos, while also producing for our great anchors, Lauren, Josh, Jarrett, and of course, the incomparable Dan Roan. <laughs> oh, Dan Roan. I mean, he's he's got a statue coming for him in Chicago at some point along the lines, right next to Tom Skilling, perhaps, or like Walter Jacobson as well. That's just a, that's an incredible, so many amazing sports experiences you've been able to, you know, not just cover, but to experience yourself and be in the heat of the moment of, and for the young listeners out there, that are looking to get into the sports game. You know, that's what it's all about. It's about hard work and you get an opportunity to be in that center ring when those major moments happen for you. You know, you mentioned the word storytelling. I went to journalism school. I it did not become my, my vocation for a very long time, but I just remember that I was attracted very much to the storytelling that was attached to sports just take us back like a little bit to that beginning area in high school. You know, what was that moment for you when you said, you know what, like this is, I want to be a part of sports in this way. Was there something that happened or were you playing sports? How did it go down? Well, it's funny because you mentioned that because when I was five years old, I went to my first Cub game and because, so I'm, so this is 1985 after they won the division and I actually did a T-ball game on the field. We could actually, we could go out there and play as part of the rolling metal. 
I did that too. Like 89, 89, 90, um, a little bit later on, our, my league or whatever was allowed to hit tee balls and you could try and hit one into the Wrigleyville stands. Yes. Yeah, it was, it was funny because we were about, we weren't that far from the outfield. One guy on my team actually did hit it to the wall on a bounce, which was kind of cool. Because I remember the fans were cheering up there. I was scared crapless. You're just kind of, I mean, it's quite an experience when you're down there. And I remember seeing Steve Stone talking to a, a member of the Padres. And I don't remember, for, remember who that was. I actually have to go back and look. I'd like to actually see who he was talking to. And I'm like, wow, that's a cool job. And that always kind of stuck in the back of my head. So when I came, you know, through my adolescence, through my formative years, I always really enjoyed sports. We had great sports. I mean, the, the Bulls were in the middle of their run. The Blackhawks were very successful in the first half of the 90s and the late part of the 80s. The Cubs won the division. The White Sox had a really competitive team in 1993. The strike really ruined them because they were probably the best team in baseball along with Montreal in 1994. Uh, we had all the, and of course, the Bears when we were really young, when I was young, 1985, I was five when that happened. So blessed to have good sports. And I wanted to find something that I could do in sports. And this came up. I wrote for the school paper when I was with, you know, the Rolling Meadows Pacer uh, right from the very beginning when I was a freshman the last semester of my freshman year, I wrote there. And I wanted to keep it going. I always liked TV. So I wanted to keep that, that going through. But it was harder to get into TV. So I did print. I did the Daily Line in college. So I covered uh, football, men's basketball for three years. I did tennis and wrestling my freshman year. And they were both really awesome. Uh, the tennis team won a national championship the next year, but they were national championship competitive. And then the wrestling team beat Iowa for the first time in 39 years, I believe, uh, that winter. It was at Huff Hall, and it was a, a chilly February day, and they beat them. And that's where it grew. So, you know, I worked. I interned at a TV station shooting for two and a half years, and then I got a job there. And storytelling became kind of something I like to do. I like to be able to take a narrative from beginning, middle to end, put it all together, use it with video, come up with a unique way to tell it using sound and video. And it became my thing to do. And I was very, very happy to be able to do that, you know, competitively on the air for so many years and then try to continue doing that on the web. You know, it's a little bit different. You know, the web videos are very, you know, kind of off the cuff. I usually, I don't usually write them out. They're usually, I just kind of put on the thing and just kind of read them out, you know, just kind of go off the top of my head, you know, do a little research before. It's always something I'd love to do and something I have always had a passion for. It really kind of began, you know, yes, began in 85 where I kind of had there, but really progressed years and years as I went through the business. Yeah, I just remember, you know, peeling through the old Chicago Tribune newspaper articles and just being obsessed as a young kid. And I was having a conversation with a family member the other day who isn't really interested in sports. And it's kind of hitting a light bulb with me right now of, you know, we're we're documenting kind of the last bastion of Rome, right? Like these are, and we were talking briefly about comedy and our improv experience, you know, comedy and improv, everyone thinks that you're making it up on the spot, but there still are rules just as there are in sports. There are basic parameters and rules. And then once the ball rolls out there, no one knows what's going to happen. And yep. the ending is always completely unpredictable. And it's the stories that, that come into the game and then the stories that walk out of the game. And I think those are some things that make sports, you know, just so integral, essential, and clearly during these tough times of the last year have been galvanizing for a lot of people. And it's helped out a lot of people to be able to understand different issues or things that go on in sports that are just not the game. I think the role of sports in social and racial justice this year has been incredible. I think in 2020, especially in the second half of 2020, it's been great to see sports do that because sports have the power to really influence that. Uh, I think that they had a tremendous impact on getting out the word, you know, for voting. We obviously had incredible voter turnout 
uh, in the 2020 presidential election. You know, we've had incredible turnout at other elections that have happened there. Sports has always been that way. And sports has always had, because there's always been the debate, sports, politics, sports, real life, are they really intertwined? We know this, you know, we knew that from the, the 19, you know, from 1968, the Mexico City games, you know, I'll never forget the two athletes putting up the fists, you know, in their way to draw attention to social and racial justice in America uh, during that time. It's always been a part of it, uh, politics and sport, they've always melded. So I think that is always important to have those kind of outside things. It, there's all, all sorts of other issues in society that sports has had a chance to really magnify doing so not only on the field with through either protests or demonstrations, but at the same point being able to be represented by different athletes. I think it's a wonderful part of sports that I'm really happy now because, you know, when I, you know, if I do stories like that, maybe 10, 15 years ago, they were a little bit taboo. Not a lot of people did it. Now it's cool to see a lot of these stories in the mainstream and they do help to increase awareness on issues that, that we all need to be aware of. I think, you know, whether that is from COVID-19, whether that is from racial social justice or, or any other issues in society, sports has a big impact on doing that. So I think it's a wonderful chance through the story, storytelling to be able to use sports as an outlet to communicate those messages. And on one hand, there seems to be, you know, a lot of everything out there. There's a lot of information. And one of the boons and one of the nice things about that I felt like has worked is, you know, athletes now, we get a chance to learn them on a different level than we ever have before. And while, you know, at some points there are some drawbacks to that, there are other points, though, where I always just try and remind myself to separate, as we're talking about right now, when we're watching the athlete perform on the field or on the court, you always have to remember that they're human beings. And you always have to remember that there is there is always probably maybe something going on in their life that you're maybe not a privy to. And, and, you know, there's an empathy and a compassion that has to go into that at all times. And the opportunity for people and fans not to learn about the athletes a little bit more, it does humanize them in a way that hopefully that does sort of soften that a little bit. You know, you hear all these times, you know, just, you know, hypothetical example, pitcher has a bad year. You head into the offseason and found out he was going through a divorce. And you go, oh, man, I can't even imagine what that would have been like to go through. I wish I had known that when I was razzing him for five or six months. Mm -hmm. Not saying that, you know, these these public people need to have all of their details shown out there in the world. But hopefully you learn a little bit more about these people that you can they can be humanized a little bit and then you can have a little empathy in, in turn. Yeah, and that's perfect, especially with the mental health. And I should have mentioned that more. I mean, that's in something that was very that's taboo. Great point. Yes very taboo even when I you know when I was growing up that's not taboo anymore because so many athletes have come out you know with their struggles and how they've dealt with their struggles uh you know, there are tons of examples through the years I, I remember Ian Snell uh he came out with a story about how he had dealt with depression and it came after he struck out 18 batters in a rehab stint in Indianapolis and I remember that very very vividly we've seen other examples of athletes who have talked very openly about their mental health. In fact, some of them who have opted out of seasons last year and in hope to preserve mental health along with the rest of their lives. It's wonderful what sports has done because I wish personally I'd had that. I wish, you know, to have been stronger. You know, if I, if I dealt with stuff or the people dealt with stuff to have had an athlete say that, to have them come out and share their story, it's going to change, you know, how many people are going to try to aggressively pursue treatment for that, how to deal with that. And it's, a one, again, a wonderful thing that I think other societies have done. You know, music has done that. You know, in the world of performance has done that with, with movies. Now you're seeing more people do that through sports, where people are hearing the sports like, okay, well, you know, it's not as taboo. I can go get help. Again, these are wonderful things, you know, that deal with things that are not so wonderful and that help make things better, you know, for the future.
Yeah, when you shine a light on something, you know, the vulnerability, it can bring it in the forefront, and then you can have that conversation. And I have no doubt you're going to continue to do it. But if you ever have any doubt that you should, you know, not be doing those types of stories, please let me tell you right now. And let me just encourage you to keep doing those. I find them always so fascinating. You know, I love, I love reading the box score like anybody else, but also getting a vibe of where these people are coming from, you know, what they have at stake too, you know, who they represent, whether it's their town, their family, their county, you know, uh, even like, you know, the region and the place of the world. So I applaud that. Let's take it off the court. Let's bring it on the court a little bit though, because I want to hear some perspectives on some things. Sure. Not, not a whole lot of Chicago sports really kind of going on right now, but there is a whole lot going on right now. Let's just start with the Chicago Bears, if you don't mind, really quickly. Just what's your take on what's supposed to be, you know, an off season when typically you don't talk about a team as often as I think we're talking about our Chicago Bears these days. How do you think this off season has gone so far? Where do you think it's heading? Well, it, it all depends on the quarterback. We're back here again. It is. It's the most important position in sports. I don't think there's any denying that. And they've got to find somebody. And they're kind of in a rut right now. If they want to try to trade for Deshaun Watson, they're going to have to give up the house. We're talking three number ones. probably, And, may, two and maybe two. the dog, too. House and maybe the dog. And throw it in. Yeah. Probably a roster starter and probably someone like a Roquan Smith or Jalen Johnson, who you've seen them emerge tremendously, especially Roquan. You, you may be looking at... He's going to be a first-team All-Pro at some point. I don't know if Deshaun is realistic. Would you be willing to give it? Somebody asked him, would you give up three number ones and a roster player? You have to think about it because an elite level, an elite one quarterback does not come along very much. And Deshaun is that guy. He's that guy. I wanted the Bears to draft him in 2017. I had the defeats for Deshaun uh, hashtag, and it's still on Twitter. He was the guy. I thought his experience, I thought that his – what he had done at Clemson. Yes, he had a few more interceptions than maybe people would have liked. That was the criticism. I thought that the rest of his game easily overcame that. They went with Trubisky in the hopes that the vision that Pace saw, whatever he saw would come to fruition. It is not. Mitch has done everything I think he can to make that happen. It hasn't worked out. It's best for both of them if they step aside. And I'm assuming that will happen. And that's a good thing for the Bears. And most importantly, it's a good thing for Mitch, who did whatever he could do, but it just wasn't here to make that work. Really, the Bears are stuck in limbo. I I really don't know where they go here with a quarterback. If you're, you know, you weren't going to go get Carson Wentz. I I think Wentz is in a perfect spot in Indianapolis. His best success came under Frank Reich, and he's going to have a chance to do that with a well-built infrastructure there in Indianapolis, where they have a chance to possibly get in. You know, they could win a title right now. You've got a monster, obviously, in Kansas City there, but they've got a real shot to win a championship, especially if Houston does decide not to bring, you know, if they do decide to go ahead and get rid of Watson, as right now he wants to do, you know, that division obviously opens upwards between them and Tennessee uh, to make a run at things. There's a lot to think about when it comes to a quarterback. It doesn't look like the Raiders are going to trade Derek Carr. At that point, you're kind of looking to see who else is out there. Speaking of the Colts, Jacoby Brissett's an interesting name. I think he's an interesting guy. I thought he did a great job in 2019 when basically he found out he's going to be the starter when their potential all-pro quarterback, Andrew Luck, just up and retires. You might remember Jacoby was sitting on, was standing on the sidelines when Andrew told him, oh, I'm retiring. You can see his facial expression. Wow. You're going to look for a guy like that. You know, I don't know. You, know, you could look at him. Maybe Nick Foles is your guy. At this point, I don't think the Bears should be messing around with their future. And unless you're getting Deshaun Watson, trade three or four, you know, trade three or four major picks, that's first or second, to try to get anybody in here. They're in an interesting spot. I think the defense is still pretty good. 
I think that David Montgomery is a good running back. I think what Allen Robinson's done the last two years has been insane considering he really hasn't had any consistency in the person throwing to him. They're in a tough spot. They're, they're going to need to get some luck here and either draft well, draft a good quarterback, find a good quarterback, have somebody who emerges and becomes and makes it all work. Other than that, they're in a weird spot and their coach and their GM are on a one, probably on their last year, approve it deal. I don't know. It's a weird spot. It's, it's we, got him, spot. we got him right where we want him, Larry. As, 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 sort of. I mean, as, I guess <laughs> you're, you're going to have to get lucky when it comes to, to a quarterback. You're going to have to get a guy who shines, who finds himself where Nagy and it all just fits in there and works. And you, that's where you're at because Trubisky didn't work that, that that's where you're at right now. Yeah. And as, and as you mentioned, in terms of fit, I don't think Carson Wentz wanted to be a Chicago bear. And, you know, whether that was going to work out on the field or not, I think that's kind of a non-starter from the beginning. At least you can give Ryan Pace credit that he got everything right about Trubisky except for the on the field stuff, which was a pretty big deal. But, right, you know, great guy, worked really hard, was athletic, did really want to be the number one quarterback in Chicago. But guess what? His play on the field just didn't translate to that, which turned out to be a very important thing in moving on. My question is, I've been trying to wrap my head around this for a little while. For the Chicago Bears fans out there that are saying you can't trade draft capital, you got to hang on to all of your picks if you want to make this work. My question for you is, I'm trying to wrap my head. You mentioned Jacoby Brissett. Is there any other scenario in your mind where the Chicago Bears are successful at quarterback next season without spending draft capital to acquire that kind of success? You're going to have to get lucky. You're going to either have to have Foles play really well. You get a guy like Brissett who who comes who plays well and works and just fits in the system. You could draft a guy. I mean, you could you could you could draft a guy. I think it's certainly possible that you could draft somebody. Yeah, if Mac get, Jones slides back or someone slides yeah, back I mean, in twenty. That's an example of a guy who could do that. You could get somebody who falls in the draft, and then suddenly you get the shot to do that. At this point, it is a little bit of luck, a little bit of scouting. Is there some lack of faith there with Pace? Absolutely. Let's not just talk about Trubisky. Let's talk right now about Foles. And Nick did not look very good last year. He had that great game against Atlanta. He was decent against Carolina in that victory. After that, it was a real struggle. The Colts really had his number. Uh, The Vikings had his number in that Monday night game, which was kind of rock bottom at that point. That was as ugly of a game offensively, frankly, that I've ever seen in my life when it comes to the Bears. And that's saying something. And you got to look before that and Mike Lennon. Mike Lennon was, I mean, he couldn't make it four games. They needed Glennon to go eight to 10 games, eight to 10 games. So at least give Trubisky some idea or some look by, by the fifth game, he's already in there. And, and if, if Trubisky, you know, if, maybe if Trubisky was, let's just say he played three years in college, he may have very well been in there second half that Green Bay game. Now the Bears beat the Steelers that year in 2017. I was going to say, I, I went to that game and they took him to overtime yeah. and, and Jordan yeah. Howard had a great game that day, mm-hmm. but it wasn't totally all Mike Glennon. That could have been another moment where Trubisky yeah, could have come and there, there. There you go. That could have been another moment there where you're doing that. And that's another thing that's really important is that, you know, he missed on Glennon and there were guys out there, you know, I, I advocated that off season for Colin Kaepernick. I thought it, I thought, that I thought it could have been a good fit. He was a good teammate coming into a veteran team. He was only a couple of years removed from a Super Bowl, and really one you know great play by Richard Sherman against Michael Crabtree from probably going to another one in 2013. I advocated for him to be the quarterback. I thought he was experienced. 
I thought you could, you could bring him in. He could work with Trubisky. You know, he was an athletic quarterback, you know, instead of him or other people, they brought in Glennon and didn't, and got nothing on it, paid him a ton of money and didn't get anything out of him. It's not like they got something out of him where he started, you know, 14 of 16 games and was at least serviceable. He just wasn't, I mean, he wasn't no, no offense to the guy. Well, he just, he yeah. Just it's like an interject for a second. Cause you're bringing up a really, really interesting point that I don't think people give enough thought into of Ryan Pace's thought process of, and I, and I feel like at times when Nick Foles came in last season, you know, I feel like the personnel on the field was not catered towards what Nick Foles does. Well, we're having problems in the offensive line. As you mentioned by that Vikings game, they were just saying, Hey, we can't even run the ball anymore. So let's just forget about it. You know, let's just go straight to shotgun. Let's spread it out. Let's see if Nick Foles can dice him up. Right. And you go back to the Mike Glennon situation. If they brought in a guy like Kaepernick, let's just say, Kaepernick's game mirrors a little bit closer to the calls and plays that would have been in there for Trubisky. They would have been running the same stuff. They would have been looking at film during the week of saying, you know, Colin, you know, what did you see here? What did you see there? And that would have translated to Mitch Trubisky's game as opposed to Mike Glennon and and Nick Foles, who I think we could both agree are very stationary. I think you're looking at totally different plays, looks, progressions, the whole nine yards. And you're not really given anything for Trubisky to lead himself into. I'm not saying that Trubisky would have been great, but it just never felt like a great fit from the start with either of those guys. No. And that was the weird thing about Glennon. And that's why, you know, I advocated for an athletic quarterback. I specifically advocated for Colin because I, you know, you knew what he was doing as a great, he was a great teammate in San Francisco. Again, experience winning, you know, he's a Super Bowl starting quarterback was very close to winning one and then making another one. I believe that 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 his message, I believe that who he was doing the social justice thing, I thought that would play here in Chicago. I really thought people would embrace that here in Chicago. That's what I like. But, you know, if you didn't want Kaepernick, if the Bears looked and said, you know, you know, he's not a good fit for us, then I would have, you know, looked somebody else even similar to that. Glennon just didn't make any sense. And true, you didn't have you didn't have Nagy and you didn't have the more fast paced offense in 17. That would have been the Dowell Loggins, you know, offensive coordinator than John Fox. But I just felt like they needed to give Trubisky some time, not just have him leap in in week five. And you're kind of out there to the wolves. You don't get a chance to really develop. And maybe some of that stuff did eventually catch up that didn't allow Trubisky to do that. To be fair, Trubisky would have been better off to go to a new England where he could have been in a solid system, three, four years, really. Where he might go this year. That's a thought. And he can go to a place where there is a solid infrastructure there and a solid base of learning, a solid base of getting a chance to establish who he would be. And he would have had that chance to do so. And now you're looking at a place where they could totally take advantage of what he does well and what he does not do well. He was not going to have that here with the Bears and it didn't work out, despite, I think, his best efforts and maybe even to a degree, the coaching staffs, it was just, it was a puzzle that they just could not get to come together. And I think if they were to bring Mitch back, I don't, that's not fair to the bears, but especially not fair to Mitch, who I think deserves the chance to have another coaching staff get in, get in there and figure out what can make him work. Cause I think there are skills there that can make him effective. One guy who's a little outside the box. It's a, will he, is he, or isn't he on the market type situation? If the Bears got involved in a Russell Wilson trade talk situation, he's 32 years old, obviously seven years senior of Deshaun Watson. Are you the type of person that would say, I'll give you those three first round draft picks? Or do you think they would have to maybe negotiate that down a little bit? 
Gosh, I don't, I don't think he'd be available, but I'm a big fan of Russell Wilson. I think that he's got tremendous skills, tremendous leadership, would bring a tremendous veteran presence if, if he were somehow available. I would think, man, I don't know, two or three for him. I'd think about it. I don't know. I, I would certainly consider one or two. For sure. I would probably try to space it. See, Deshaun is so young. That's where, and not that, I mean, Wilson's not an old man by any, by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, Deshaun is still building toward his prime. That's why I would say if they offered three first-round picks and maybe you could escape with getting a second and not give a roster player, do, you do it because you don't, you don't find the lead quarterback. But Russell's and Ryan somebody, Pace isn't great at first-round picks anyway. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> in all, he's been, I mean, Roquan was tremendous. I think that Leonard Floyd was a good pick. Injuries may have limited him. Again, he was another trade-up guy. A Trubisky, obviously not for the spot they picked him. And, and obviously when, you know, you're looking at the two guys that fell below him at the quarterback position. And Kevin and White's Roquan, just a sad story. When you're looking at Ryan Pace's drafting ability, you're looking in the middle rounds where he's done a really good job. That's where he's really racked up. You know, the Eddie Jackson selection in 2017, the Eddie Goldman suggestion, the selection that happened in 2015, his second pick with the Bears. Uh, very, very good player. Uh, there's a few that I'm just going to miss here and there. Jalen Johnson, I think right now, uh, starting cornerback, did a nice job with the second round pick there. Cole Komet, I think, showed some potential. And there was some question about selecting him because the Bears had so many tight ends in that room. Although I argued that they didn't really have a truly elite tight end in that locker room and that they were looking for that. And if you're committed to Nagy, you got to have yourself a good tight end. Pace has done some good work in those middle rounds. He's done a nice job to bulk up that roster and do some good things there. Uh, we're seeing Darnell Mooney. I think Darnell Mooney's another guy. His guy's just kind of popping in my head. He's a starter. I think right now he's, again, middle round guy who got there. Pace's strengths are in the middle rounds. And that's why some have argued that you might be able to separate yourself from a few first round picks because Pace has done so much damage in those middle rounds and a first round pick the Bears would need to take care of would be with a quarterback. But again, I think the Bears have other needs too. They need to find it, I think, some tackles. You know, they've, they've had some struggle to tackle position, both with injuries and, and at play. Getting another tackle, I think, would be critical. You could look at the guard spot. You still got James Daniels there. Cody Whitehair slidding over, you know, sliding over to center. You still have that rotation that you can go with um, in that perspective. But, you know, I think really, if you're looking at it, Russell would be great. I don't think they'll separate for him. But yes, I consider a first round pick if you could get him. Yeah, you, you obviously you're going to make the phone calls. We'll see how everything kind of shakes out. If you are the Chicago Bears, though, they may be one of the few teams that would go to the Seattle Seahawks with this godfather offer that would actually make Seattle go, can I call you back in 10 minutes and actually maybe think about it? Let's take a quick break and a quick moment to talk about our newest sponsor, eBay. Now, whether it's rare dead stock or the latest release, find the exact shoe you've been looking for is the original sneaker marketplace. eBay is the place to go to cop the pair you've been eyeing. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected and independent professional authenticators. They take the time as a team of experienced sneaker authenticators. They verify the box, the logo, the stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee tag that includes a digital stamp. It also protects sellers with a verified return process. And for sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees. So on sneakers of $100 or more, making it free to sell or flip your collection. So go to ebay.com slash sneakers today. eBay, the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. 
want you to put your finger on the pulse of Chicago sports, something that you do 24 seven every day of your life. And just let us let the good people know right now, what is the more compelling sports story in Chicago right now? These Chicago bulls or these Chicago Blackhawks, two teams that aren't lighting the league on fire, but both kind of threatening for playoff position right now. Maybe both have exceeded expectations a little bit. Which one's the more compelling story to you right now? For right now, I think it's probably the Blackhawks in the moment just because they are playing well enough right now. And it's a kind of a shock because they were replacing a number one goaltender. They did not have a number one goaltender to replace him. It's really a trio of guys. And you're looking at Matt Tompkins, who's in Rockford, and he's been considered a lot. Could be even a, you know, really a, a quartet of guys you're looking at hmm. that could be doing that. They don't have Jonathan Taves. Let's let's start with the most important thing. Your man in the middle, your guy who facilitates, even if he's not playing up to the level that he did years and years ago, although you don't see that happen a lot. You know, he, you've seen sparks of him over the last few years. You still look at a leadership position and they're competing. I mean, they're going up against, they're standing toe to toe with a lot of these teams and they're, they're winning games. They're getting points. They're making it happen. Jeremy Colleton has been able to have an influence on a group that he maybe didn't have the last two years. He's maybe developing something as far as a style. A lot of the Blackhawks have talked about how much they admire Carolina's aggressive approach. They're building a little bit of that and they're doing it with guys you, you know, you've heard about, you know, you've heard of the DeBrinkets. He's having a fantastic year. Patrick Kane's in the prime of his career and, and it's not going anywhere. He looks, you know, the spinorama goal he had on, Friday night in Carolina was ridiculous. I mean, that's, he's still that's, elite. He's still that's elite. Like, it's incredible. That's, that's a legacy play right there. And he said he yeah. missed where he was aiming for the shot and still scored the goal. <laughs> he's, he's an elite player. He is still there. He's one of the top seven in the league. He's still firmly planted right there. <clears throat> to break it is coming into his own. You're seeing great plays from other guys. Pia Suter. He's another guy, a, a younger player who's, who's played well. Kevin Lonkinen has played really, really well in net. And Malcolm Subban's had his moments as well as Malcolm, who comes to the franchise looking for his finally a chance to be a number one goaltender in the league and have a net to, you know, to himself and be the top guy. He'll have something to say, I'm sure, before the end of this. And then Colin Dealey is a guy they signed to a contract a couple of years ago. They like the most coming into the year, right? I mean, they, yeah, that was the guy they were really hanging their hat on. Yeah, and he's a guy that, that had had experience, who had started games, who was committed to financially by the organization. Right now, he's kind of sitting third as Subban and, and Lankin and do their thing. So they've been a surprise. The Bulls are always compelling in their own way. And in many ways, to me, it kind of goes in the middle because, you know, the Bulls still have huge influence in this town. And it's compelling that the Garpax era is finally over. So you're getting Karnishavis, you're getting Eversley, who are taking a new look at this roster that pretty much returned intact from the Boylan, from the Garpax era, you're seeing those guys, you know, what are they doing? How are they tinkering with it? What are they seeing? What are they doing? First of all, Billy Donovan's a remarkable coach. I think we've seen that. His taking Oklahoma City to the playoffs after they were essentially torn down last year was an incredible achievement. And we're seeing just how good of a coach he is. You know, maybe Billy Donovan, you know, you kind of look at it and you go, is Billy the guy that will take them to the promised land to see the guy who will get them to the point where the next guy will take them to the promised land. I'm sitting here right now thinking he is the guy to take the bulls to the promised land. He's really, really good. And they are playing a little bit, you know, probably a healthy amount better than you thought he's getting, you know, there are lulls where you see and deficiencies that they just don't have when they go up against some of the great teams, 
but they've held in games with the West coast trip that they had, you know, back in January, they were slugging it out right there with every team. They came an eyelash from sweeping Portland, who I think is a good team. Damian Lillard is like, like Patrick Kane is in the NHL. Damian Lillard is that in the NBA and he is an elite player and pulled a Reggie Miller at the end of that game in Chicago a few weeks back. You know, it's just one of those, you take your hat off. What can you do? I'm compelled to see, I think the biggest storyline for the Bulls right now is what will become of Zach Levine. Will he be a max money guy? Do the Bulls not want to commit money to a max to him, not making him a max money guy? Do they see him as being a second piece? Do they see him being the first piece in rebuilding a team? That's a compelling storyline as we now look and see what I believe will be Zach Levine's first all-star appearance. We've seen him be able to score a lot of points. Can he improve other parts of his game, which he's slowly doing? His defense has gotten a little bit better, but still is suspect at times. But right now he is an elite scorer. He's up there at the top of the league and he has improved. He has tried to be a leader. He has done everything right to do that. He's had great production. Now the key is going to be able to see if Karnishevis and Eversley determine him to be the number one guy that they want to move forward with. That they're seeing him as the alpha as they move forward in trying to return to the Bulls. Uh, I believe it was Eversley who said making the Bulls cool again. You know, if he's going to be the guy to do it, they're both kind of in my book compelling. I just kind of start with the Blackhawks because in the moment, at the moment, in their competitiveness, as an on an ice product right now, they have been, frankly, a pretty big surprise. And in terms of the Bulls, really interested to see, as you mentioned, yeah, what pieces stick around moving forward as the season goes along? I've just been really impressed by the whole by the whole outfit. And I think it's in comparison to how bad things have gotten in previous seasons that January schedule, as you mentioned, was absolutely brutal. They started off the season not playing great the first four or five games, but they kind of been really competitive. And the things that they've been deficient in, like turnovers, you know, silly mistakes, bad shot selection. I mean, that's a young team making young mistakes. I'm with you. I, I like the Billy Donovan. I feel like Billy Donovan was like the tow truck that pulled the car out of a mud pond. And maybe, you know, I, I didn't know either if he can maybe drive us all the way back to the dealership to get that fresh new championship car. But at the very least, I feel like that that we're out of it. You know what I mean? With him and Zach Levine, I just think Zach Levine cares. You know, I just think it's nice. You, you actually see a, a guy, you know, that that, as you mentioned, not great defensively but will try probably 60% more than he has in the past has tried to become more of a playmaker, more of a distributor. And I am in agreement with you because I think the Blackhawks actually have a little bit more going for them right now, AKA like the Detroit Red, Red Wings in their division all of a sudden, which is really nice things like that. But at, at the same time, you know, the bulls, I, I just think I, you know, if they don't make the playoffs, I'm not going to be upset because they'll be in the lottery. If they do make the playoffs, I'll be like, okay, great. We get to see some playoff games. And I'm in agreement with you on the Blackhawks. My question for you is, and look, I have to, I, I want to respect the privacy nature of it, but is it fair to ask the question, is the Jonathan Taves mystery story, is it being underreported right now, properly reported? Or, you know, how, what, what is your take on that? Because this guy, I got his jersey in my closet. This guy won three cups and he can't get on the ice. You know, just what is your take on, you know, what's happening with that right now and where the Blackhawks go? Well, I think I think it's being properly reported. It's a it's a personal issue, and yeah. obviously, people want to know more because rumors get out, and and rumors have gotten out. And you you know, obviously, Bowman did quash a lot of those. Uh, and I think that you, I I think it is his privacy, and I think 
as respect to his privacy, it, I think it's being fairly reported. He's out, whatever reason or whatever's going on, he's out. And you respect that. He's a captain of this team. He is, you know, and everybody, to be fair, everyone has earned that right to have that privacy. Yes. Everyone is, even if it's a first-year player or as we see with Taves, a face of a, of a very successful franchise and organization, he's earned that right to do it. It's concerning. Fans are concerned. You, you mentioned yeah, it just it sucks, right? It sucks. You want an answer. Yeah. You can't get the answer. And that's that's the rock and the hard place with it. I totally it. People are anxious to hear out of concern, not out of I don't think that the wanting to know what is wrong comes from a bad place. It doesn't. That's not where it comes from. It comes from the fact that a beloved member of arguably the greatest run in the history of one of the established franchises here in the city is dealing with something that's quite a mystery. And it's just, it's human nature to, to be inquisitive and to wonder what that is. But I think it's being reported fairly. I don't think people have pushed people on it. I think when Taves is ready, he'll say something. I, I, it's, it's not like Taves' nature to be that way. But even if it weren't his nature, it, it's none of our business. And he'll reveal it, especially when it's an illness of this, this type of, uh, of, of magnitude. Yeah. And I, you know, it's just a bummer is, is really what it is. I think we want to see our captain out there on the ice. He's coming off a really great season. He's actually coming off a, a couple of rejuvenated seasons. I feel, I feel like back to back the last several years and, you know, yeah, it, it's just a wait and see. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that whole thing where I just think that there's the pull of people wanting to know exactly what's going on. That really is his business. And hopefully when he does come back, he's healthy and he could play the game that he loves and we could root for him because we love Jonathan Taves. Larry Holly, let's get you out of here on this question. Spring training is right around the corner. Just want to get your quick take right now. So maybe I'll phrase it like this, where it's a little bit of there's brimming optimism on one side and there's, uh, I don't even know how to say it, a delousing of skepticism on another side. So let me maybe phrase it to you like this. What do you think is maybe more likely to happen this season? The Cubs losing 90 games or the White Sox winning 100 games? Which do you think is more likely? The White Sox winning 100. I don't think the Cubs are at that level where they would drop to 90 losses. Could it happen? Sure. I mean, everything can kind of go down. The, we know that things can happen. Great teams can go and just have a terrible season. There's enough of an infrastructure for the Cubs that I think that they could at least, I think personally, if I had to target their wins, I go 81-85. And I think that might be a, a fair one. I think that that would probably be something that would be a little bit on the higher end for some people. Reason why I'd say that is because they're bringing back a similar offense that frankly has not produced, frankly has had flameouts the last three years. And there have not been massive changes to that. At the same time, there is that thought in your head, you've seen what the guys can do and you think maybe they can turn it. And maybe you have, have that thought that 2020 off the, the wall, maybe they can turn it. But yeah, again, Larry, just list the names, right? You start doing Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, Javier Baez, Wilson Contreras, and you'll go, wow, those are four all-stars right there. Am I over, am I overthinking this a little bit? And could they maybe be a little bit better? Not necessarily. And don't forget Jason Hayward's hitting a lot better now than he was yeah. two or three years ago. So he's, you know, he's a threat now, whereas you were looking for him maybe in six, when he came here and was struggling 16, 17, you know, you were looking more for his leadership and especially his glove in the outfield. He's an elite glove. He's an elite player when it comes, he's an elite, you know, he's an elite outfielder. That's has changed, will never change. Don't forget you're adding this offense to Jason Hayward, who is looking more like the guy when he was in Atlanta 
and St. Louis when he's at the plate. And you look at those guys, you know, I remember David Ross called it, and I think Jed Hoyer did as well, baseball card numbers. You look at the base, you know, back of their baseball cards. If these guys produce and they can find a leadoff hitter and, and be consistent with it, you really do have a great team that could really win 90 to 95 games. They can do that. But there are questions with the rotation. We know Hendricks will be good. Zach Davies is a good pitcher. You are looking at Jake Arietta. You know, is he what he was in 15 or 16? Probably not. But if he could improve a little bit, maybe you get better. Trevor Williams, can he be the pitcher he was in 2018 when he was 14 and 10? Had an ERA in the threes. Not the disaster that really was last season. You have some hope there. But you probably at some point down the road are going to need another guy that's going to start that might come out of the woodwork a little bit. I think Alec Mills is established. Adbert Alzali is going to get his shot to fully pitch this year. And you're going to need Craig Kimbrell to be Craig Kimbrell. And if he's not, that's going to be a problem. They're going to have to go find another closer. They're going to need middle reliever guys. They're going to need some guys who are just going to have to be better. They're going to have to be better than they've been, while also other guys are going to have to return to where they were. Do that. Maybe you get in and you win the division and you face the two monsters, the two Goliaths that are out there with the Dodgers and the Padres. I shouldn't have not gone this long without mentioning the White Sox who are. (laughs) That's okay. And real quick, just to put a bow on what you're talking about with the Cubs, I'm in agreement with you. I was asking that question because I wanted to see what the reaction would elicit because I think that this Cubs team strangely might be just as good, if not a skosh better than they were last season because as you mentioned, the pitching depth, Carl Schwarber, I hate to see him go, but Jacques Peterson brings better defense, can possibly play leadoff, still has the same amount of power, and can play center and left field. You've got versatility there that you didn't have before. Chris Bryant maybe gets healthy. I mean, I don't know. It kind of looks a little bit better on the north side than people are making it out to be. Yeah, and Jacques Peterson's really good in the playoffs, so if they can get there, you know, he's been fantastic in the postseason. But to get to the White Sox, they're a 100 to 105 win team. They are loaded. They are stacked. They've done everything they needed to do to really make this happen. If you're a fan and you're complaining, maybe you might question the right field decision with Adam Eaton, but you know, maybe you wanted a bigger name there, but Eaton is, you know, I, it didn't end so well last time that we, we know about the locker room stuff, but Eaton has also won a world series. He's have a, a few years older, gets a chance to join an organization that looks a lot different than it did a year ago than it did, you know, four years ago when he was traded for Lucas and was traded for Ronaldo and a couple other players. And if I may very quickly, you know, what is the one thing that when the trading deadline comes around, what is the one thing that you can get the best bang for your buck out of it's corner outfielders. I mean, those are guys that when they're going good, you can sell them for a couple of double a minor leaguers and turn everything around. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. And Adam's going to bring, you know, he'll bring a good, you know, a good glove. He'll be a good outfielder out there. And if he can get his hitting going, which he's has at times, he obviously did well for the nationals again, you know, in the playoffs, I remember him doing very well in the playoffs that year, especially the world series. Then you get a lot out of him. Luis Robert is, is a star. You know, Eloy Jimenez is a star. You have the Osmani Grandal who's solid behind the plate. And you have a pitching staff that has three really strong guys at the top. Lucas Giolito is coming into his own. His comeback should be one of the best, the best in baseball. That guy in 2018 had a six ERA, terrible record, an all-star the next year, would have probably been in 2020 as well. And in his one playoff performance, delivered a gem. I think he had a perfecto into the seventh inning. He pitched great. Dallas Keuchel, tremendous appearance, a, a, a tremendous experience, you know, playoff experience, pitched well last year. 
Lance Lynn, that's, that's a veteran guy. That's a guy with playoff experience in St. Louis, solid pitcher, all around, really, really great pitcher there. Then you get to the back end of the, and you have a lot of potential back there. So we got Dylan Cease, you know, who's back from last year. You've learned all the Lopez who's back there. And don't forget about Michael Kopech. He's the guy who opted out. We spoke about, you know, you know, we spoke about players being open with their personal issues. Michael Kopech was very open with that when, you know, when here in spring training, when talking about his reasons for opting out in 2020, he's got a ton of potential. And if he comes through and he realizes that and doing so after not pitching for a long time because of his Tommy John surgery, my God, you got a fourth there. You still have Cease who's up there who could pitch well. There's a lot of guys there. And I know I'm forgetting some others that are there and I'm going to be angry at myself for doing that. But you look at Ronaldo Lopez, if Lopez finds consistency, what if he has Carlos Rodon back? I mean, yeah. Carlos Rodon's another guy. And I'm curious if he'll be a long reliever where Rodon's going to fit in. That's, you know, another guy. I kind of target him for the bullpen. I'm kind of curious if he could be a great bullpen arm because he still can strike people out. Strikeouts were a big thing for him when he's been healthy and he's been very effective at doing that. And I'm not even talking about the infield yet. I've neglected the infield, which could be one of the best in all of baseball. You've got your reigning uh, American League MVP and Jose Abreu, Nick Madrigal, who's at second place, Tim Anderson, who's one of the great rising stars in our game and still gets forgotten a lot, which I don't know how that happens. And is still getting better. Isn't he so impressive that truly year by year, you know, when he led the league in hitting two seasons ago, we were like, okay, little drop off, no big deal. If he hits 295, nothing, no big deal. He got better. I mean, he is a superstar in the making. He is a superstar in the making, a potential top 10 major league baseball player, maybe top seven to top five. That's his ceiling right now. That's where you're talking with Tim Anderson. Anderson is one of the original guys. He was there before they even started the rebuild. He debuted in 16. You know, he's dealt with injuries last year and still did all with what he could do. He led the American League in hitting in 2019. 335, I believe, was the average. He is a superstar in the making and needs to be remembered. And how many guys can you say that about when the White Sox is really, it really is incredible. And let's not forget Yuan Moncada, who has transitioned to third base, the original man in the rebuild. He is the original guy. He was the original yeah. highlighter of the sale trade. Uh, Kopech was in that sale trade as well. And he's, you know, you know, he had COVID last year and he, again, he was open about having COVID. And despite that, you know, had to work his way back from that and still was very effective, you know, for the White Sox. He, I think, has more room to grow. So you look at all this stuff. That's a team. The biggest question is going to be Tony La Russa. A surprise and shocking, and I even said, I did my little hit, even controversial pick. This is a guy who hasn't managed in 10 years, and the White Sox hired him. It was nine years. Uh, This is somebody who is unequivocally one of the greatest managers in the history of the game. You saw what he built in Oakland, you know, really was very close to having a dynasty there. You might say that he had a dynasty there. They were only able to just get the one championship. You look at what he did in St. Louis. The funny thing is that in St. Louis, he won in the two years where they weren't as great. In 2006, they were a good team, but they were so, so compared to the monsters they had in 04 and 05. You know, they win that year. They win in 06. They won 84 games, I think it was that year when they went to the World Series. It was in that neighborhood, I think, they won that year. You might remember the Cubs in 07 then won with a similar number of wins that next year. Uh, That year, they they, when they bested the Brewers in Lou Pinella's first year. 2011, that's why I was surprised La Russa wanted to come back because I don't think you draw a better story than 2007. 
you uh, 2011, excuse me, the Cardinals are basically dead in the water. They're about nine and a half games back in early September, not like September one, I think it was like early September. Like they were a couple of days into the month. They rally back when the, we go ahead and win the wild card without even having to have a playoff game and then run our way all the way to the world series and to win the championship. And those games six and seven, that showed the foundational strength of that franchise. They were down to their final out twice, down to their final strike. Win that game six in incredible fashion, uh, the freeze homer in the 11th inning. I mean, that Cardinal team was down tw- by two runs facing elimination with three outs to go. Came back one game seven, fell behind in game, game six, fell behind in game seven again, then won it again. That. It's unbelievable. I was shocked LaRusso would not want what I mean, how else can you go better go out with that? But I'm really curious to see how LaRusso relates to the players. He obviously is somebody who has dealt with a lot of of Latin players, players from Latin America in the past. He's a fluent Spanish teacher, uh, Spanish speaker, excuse me. I'm very curious to see how he relates to players on issues of the time, how the game is played, how players celebrate their accomplishments in the game, because that obviously is a hotly debated thing that's come up with the White Sox that draws a lot of a, a lot of heated arguments from both sides of the equation. It's really fascinating. I think it's going to be a fascinating year to see how Larusa handles it, how Larusa is able to take some of his old school ways, especially when it comes to handling pitchers and in in strategy, and translates that to the game ten years after he left and left at the highest level, left as a World Series champion. It's compelling. It really is because if things work out well for the White Sox, they could have a hundred to one hundred and five win team. They could be the best team in baseball. They could set themselves up for a really long run. And even if that doesn't work out, they could have an incredible 2016 like Cubs season where they are just dominant. And, you know, maybe even more of an away than they were in 05, which they were a very dominant team. They just they just rose in a hurry. All very compelling. But the LaRusse element is really compelling. To, I'm really curious to see how it's going to play out over the next six months. It's fat. It really is fascinating. Well, and the different doors that the narrative could possibly open up for him, because as it stands right now, in my opinion, he's kind of a little bit of in a no win situation, right? Where everyone expects these huge things for the White Sox right now. And man, if they only won 88, 89, 90 games, the casual sports fan, in my opinion, is going to go Larusa. But if they win 95 to 105, are they really going to give him the credit or is he just the guy that's steering the wheel on the ship and not crashing it into the iceberg? For me personally, I just want him to handle the bullpen. Just get the bullpen right. Please handle our young stars like crochet, whatever you decide to do with Kopech, you know, deal, deal with these things appropriately, prudently, as best as you possibly can. And, you know, whatever. Don't Ricky Renteria me by putting Dane Dunning in as a decoy and then pulling him out of a game and then going to Carlos Rodon with the bases loaded and nobody out. And he's never been in that situation before. You know, that's the that's the minutia that I'm looking at. But the broader aspect of how we how we judge Tony LaRusso this season is going to be very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is. And funny, Liam Hendricks mentioned that he liked the fact that LaRusso was an old school guy and that would wheel the closer out a lot of times. You know, he liked that because he wants to go, you know, the guys like they want to pitch. They want yeah. to get out there for as many games as possible. It's really compelling. And I, I'm excited to see how Larusa embraces the, 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 the players, embraces the attitudes, the new attitudes of the game. 
and how the White Sox embrace him bringing an old school style to the game. And obviously that's drawn criticism, you know, both for and against. I mean, it, it's really compelling. I mean, that late October around that news conference, there were really, really heated debates on both sides about Tony La Russa. I'm really curious to see what he does here. If he does well, relates to players, is able to have the correct strategy that deals with this group to provide a World Series championship, you could make a claim he's the greatest manager of all time. I don't think I'm out of bounds in saying that. He could be the greatest manager of all time. To do that at 76 years old would be remarkable. It, it's just, it is going to be very interesting to see how that does. And that debate's going to continue. It's really compelling. It's really compelling. It's a compelling thought that some Sox fans kind of wish they didn't have because I think they were hoping, they were hoping for a different manager, but it's here. And again, the players are there. The team is there. And you are right to a degree. You know, if, if he wins 84 games, there will be a lot of anger. There will be a lot of calls for his job very quickly. Even if, the, uh, it, it, unless they win 84 and go win the World Series, then, you know, it's going to be a different thing. It's fascinating. It really is a fascinating element to a season that Sox fans really saw coming for a couple of years. Um, it, it's interesting. I'm really curious to see how this plays out over six months. Yeah, he could get the boot or get, you know, have people calling for him to get the boot or he could win a championship in his fifth decade of coaching. Larry, we went way over time. My apologies, but man, I'm, I'm having such a great time talking to you. Um, no, great, man. I enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Larry Hawley, thank you so much for joining the show today. You can check out his excellent work as a sports producer for WGN TV, but also his Facebook page. He's also releasing, you know, most recently a Tony Larusa piece that was excellent as well. You got to check that out too. Is there any other type of plug or any other way that people can check out your work? You can see me at, uh, you can see the uh, writing of not only of mine, but other coworkers like uh, Rick Tarsitano, Josh Friedman, uh, Lauren Majera, Dan Roan, Joel Libertor, Jared Payton. We're all at WGNTV.com. You can either, you can do slash sports, WGNTV.com slash sports, and it will take you straight to the page or just go to WGNTV.com and you can just click on the sports tab. It'll be there. You can follow me on Twitter at Holly Sports, all one word, H-A-W-L-E-Y, sports. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram, Holly 80 so l-h-a-w-l-e-y 80 and i'm on there i'm also on tiktok here and there on holly sports i get to it here i get to it there um i probably dance routine here dance routine there i I did one outside of wrigley field when they so they they lit up uh the green the orange uh they, they made the scoreboard orange on halloween week so wrigley glue like you'd never seen it like it was glowing like you'd never seen it glow before so i did a the uh, Halloween theme walk around the ballpark. It was kind of creepy and kind of crazy. If, if, if you check it out, it was actually really cool, but it was I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. I, I'm in, I'm in on it now, <laughs> no, but that's where I am right now, but no, it should be good. Awesome. Larry, uh, such a pleasure, man. Great talking to you. And hopefully you can come back and do it sometime. Anytime, man. Thank you. This is Believe in Betting Chicago with Joey Christopoulos. Today's episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Make sure you head on to their website right now, and you'll get 50% off your first deposit. That's pretty nice right there at betonline.ag. Thank you so much for listening today. we got tons more pods coming this week. Thank you for listening to this one. Make sure you check out the next one. Until then, be well, be safe. Please be good to each other. We will talk soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.